Hello and welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast of podcast by whoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by Sam Ty and Ali Maxwell this week, making his Edge of the Box debut, replacing his good friend, George Ellick. We're here to preview all the Premier League's weekend action, and we're going to start with the biggest game of the weekend, which is probably Arsenal against Tottenham, the North London derby. Ali, going to give you an early touch of the ball here. This feels like the first time in at least a few years, actually, where both of these teams feel in a relatively good place and a, and a relatively settled place, so it, it should make up for an interesting matchup. It's definitely the most excited about this fixture I've been as a neutral for as long as I can remember. Uh, I mean, even the chaotic games where one team goes into it in concerning form, it never really fails to entertain. So uh, it does feel extra tasty uh, this time out. I was trying to be clever and think, you know, I remember Nuno started quite well. I think he won his first three Premier League games as Spurs manager. Then I looked it up and they played Arsenal match day six. They had just lost 3-0 to Chelsea and before that had lost 3-0 to Palace. So uh, I can't think of a time, as you've said, that that uh, this is kind of most exciting from a neutral's point of view. Two really good teams, really positive fan bases who love their manager and who broadly are playing really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, we've got the Arsenal player rating so far for 23-24 that, that will flash up on, on the screen. Now, it's worth noting that before we get into this discussion that we're recording this before Arsenal have played in the Champions League. So all the kind of selection dilemmas, we don't know what the team is at the time of recording for, for the Champions League games. None of us are, are ITK for Arteta's team selection. And in fairness, it's pretty hard to guess. Arteta's teams at the moment. We had the big issue with the goalkeepers at the weekend. It was Raya versus Ramsdale. Bit of a bit of a statement selection for for Raya against Everton. Arteta explained why it was that he put put Raya in because Ramsdale kind of knows the North London derbies has played in a few now. Do you think he'll go back to him? Yeah. So you've you've given us the caveat there, which is we don't know what happens on the Wednesday night just yet at the time of recording, uh, but would it even inform us anyway? Like, there's still question marks because if Raya plays on Wednesday night, it doesn't mean that Ramsdale doesn't play the North London derby. It might just mean that Raya was given the Saturday or the Sunday, I should say, for uh, for Everton in order to get himself into, into gear for the Champions League. So he wasn't going into the Champions League cold. You could also argue the other way around. We'll just have to see. And... You know, I've been pretty consistent on this. Like, I don't really see too much between them. I think Arteta wanted depth and I think he wanted competition of of quality. And we're in it. This is it. You know, he, he's just started talking about how he maybe regrets not substituting his goalkeeper mid-game. He is subtly arming us for something that is probably going to take course over the course of the season, which is who knows who's going to play. You know, I, like, who is number one? Is there a number one? Is it more like a, a dual 0.5 I think Arteta's trying to prepare us here. And I think he's actually been quite clever, you know, mentioning the fact that he regrets not subbing a keeper. That means mm. that when he does it, none of us go mad because yeah. we kind of, we're kind of expecting it now. So he's damage controlling from the off. Or he's just playing a kind of classic start of the season game where he's got two goalkeepers. He knows he's going to be asked about them. He wants to make sure that they're both motivated and, and training as hard as they can so that they can be number one. And maybe from... You know, next month onwards, one of them will be the definitive number one, and and maybe the questions will stop because they'll be the definitive number one without much argument. I mean, I, I like Ramsdale. I think he's a good keeper. Uh, I find him very entertaining, and I think I want him starting in derby games because uh, you, you just know that he's he's going to have big moments, and mostly they go his way. Sometimes they don't. Um, I think Rai could be a better keeper for Arsenal down the line. That's kind of my stance at this stage, but 
it's been so early uh, or it's so early in the season. We haven't seen tons of Raya in an Arsenal shirt. But my hunch is that it'll be Raya long term. Um, and I think that's why they signed him, because although Ramsdale had a good season and Arsenal had a good season, I think they want to try and find the best possible players to play in every position. And I think they're going to be cutthroat in that quest. So uh, that that's kind of how I see it at the moment, even though I realise that the discourse around it has has not really reflected that. Yeah, Arteta likes to be an innovator, Sam. We've seen that previously in the last few years in the Premier League. It's all well and good, this goalkeeper stuff. But as soon as he changes it and one makes a mistake, that's when the dialogue's going to change, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. I mean, probably the, the most scrutinised position on the pitch and the position on the pitch where errors are most costly. So what Ramsdale absolutely did not need to start the season with David Raya having been brought in was what happened at home in the what the second game um, really early on in that first minute. And like it wasn't all his fault, obviously, Saka and White, and there's a bit of a miscommunication, but he's just kind of caught out of goal. Just not what you need, is it, when they've just sort of picked up David Raya and, and committed to, okay, not a lot up front, but they're obviously going to make this loan permanent. And if they do so, it's to the tune of 25, 30 million euros. This is a serious commitment to a good goalkeeper. So, yeah, that's that's exactly how the chat's going to go. And for Ramsdale, presu- I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think Ramsdale will start the North London derby because I think that's a bit much for Raya to come into, even if he's got the two games as a run-up. So Ramsdale probably needs to go ahead and do what Ali said, which is produce a big Ramsdale moment one that goes his way, preferably. He had a few at the back end of last season, actually, where he made big saves in, yeah. in big games. The other selection issue, Ali, for Arsenal is, is probably Kai Havertz. He was left out of the Everton game as well. This makes me laugh because it's, I think with the, everyone talks about players being dropped. That's not yeah. not what happens. There's, there's rotation goes on in the Premier League. Players aren't going to play every game. I mean, I guess Saka will for Arsenal, but generally, you know, Saka, Erdegaard, after that, Declan Ross, there probably isn't you know many more that aren't going to be susceptible to being left out in games. Yeah, spot on, uh, of course. And and Arsenal's issue last season, if you can call it an issue, they had a phenomenal campaign and a, and a brilliant points tally. But looking back, the big knock on them, or or rather their their weakness, if there was a major one, was maybe not having the rotation quality or the or the players that came in uh, being a bit of a drop off in quality from the first team and and you know became such a, a a repeatable style of play a repeatable performance level from their starting 11 and and maybe outside of that that's where they struggled so uh, that has to be part of their development and progression to being a, a team that continues to challenge and maybe one day wins a premier league title with arteta so you know these these decisions are are going to become more and more commonplace, and I think everyone w- would do well to understand that. I mean, I, I think that Fabio Vieira will start in that role, or at least I, I think he should start in that role. Um, I, I think they'll start probably how they finished against Everton, and that was with Trossard on the left side of attack because of Martinelli's uh, absence, with Fabio Vieira as, as the left-sided eight, uh, and, and the normal two uh, on the right side of that midfield uh, in, in Odegaard and Saka, I guess the other question mark is up front with Nketiah and, and Jesus fight, vying for the number nine shirt. But f- for me, Vieira's performance was so eye-catching and you know people seem surprised about it as if quality players don't sometimes need a bit of time to settle in and adapt when they join, um, uh, you know, when they join a club like he did from a different league. And for me right now, he's a more compelling offering than, than Havertz, who I've been trying for a couple of years now to just remind myself to forget the Leverkusen star that everyone was obsessed with and, and everyone fell in love with because 
he was this kind of Swiss army knife attacker that could do it all um, and, and thrived in that system because that's not Premier League 2023 Kai Havertz. And I don't think it has been for many years. Um, I find him a strange player. I think he's a strange uh, concept tactically when it comes to the Premier League. I've never felt uh, like any manager or Havertz himself have, have really nailed down a, a spot where it makes complete sense and he contributes you know, really well on a personal level. Um, his body language doesn't fill anyone with confidence. And I don't think his performances have, have been particularly strong. You know, this is judging him to really high standards because of the transfer fees that he has commanded and the teams that he plays for. So I, I don't want to be too harsh, but I, I think he's a good player. I think he's good in loads of different aspects of the game. But I don't think he's incredible in any aspects of the game. And um, I think for me at the moment, I, I wouldn't be rushing to start him if I was Arteta. I guess it's that that use of him. It's still I'm not sure where he played for Chelsea ever suited him, but I'm not sure the position he's been playing in for Arsenal particularly suits him either. He probably needs somewhere in between, mm-hmm. but Arsenal don't play with with that formation. Yeah, he's not, not going to he's not going to raise your ceiling enough when you're talking about the best teams in the world to build a whole system around him. So no, no, it's really, it, 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 look, it, it's a sign that that raised eyebrows. If he hadn't scored in the Champions League final for Chelsea. I guess his signing would have gone down as an unmitigated disaster, but he kind of not stealing a living off, off that, but that kind of tilts it in a, in a slightly yeah, different a direction. Period, Chelsea weren't upset for him to go, a, were they? Man, they got such a grace period out of him because of that. Like they were just like, oh, it's fine. He scored us the winning goal, <laughs> that kind of thing, and that lasted for ages, didn't it? Um, look, I, I'm, I'm with Ali. Like I would, I would play Fabio Vieira. Um, I think he's certainly done more in the last couple of weeks to warrant a starting spot. And when you consider this game and what it is and what it means to the fans and, and how aggressive the first sort of 15 to 20 minutes are going to be because of the zip in the play, really what I'd be looking for from my starting players is that they're in good form and have good momentum and have good belief. I cannot say that Kai Havertz has any of those three things, but I no. can say that Fabio Vieira is taking his chances and that every time he gets onto the pitch, starter or as a sub, as an impact player, he makes us notice him. And that, yeah. for me, is enough. That That's enough in the context of this game and what it means for him to get the starting role. I think if Havertz plays, it would be a little bit unfair on Vieira, but it would also be a signal that Arteta is going to be a little bit more defensive and cautious than we might have assumed, particularly at home. Because really, the only thing Kai Havertz has shown us in terms of a strength at Arsenal so far is actually he's been very good off the ball. He's won a lot of duels in the final third. He's done a lot of counter-pressing. He's actually very smart defensively, positionally, when you're in the attacking third. So, okay, are you going to lean on that? Are you, are you worried about that? Is that is that the sort of game plan you're going for? Or are you going to are you going to go for? Are you going to go for Spurs? Are you going to start quick? So, I expect Arteta to send out a team full of belief and full of commitment to playing from the first whistle. And I think Vieira sums that up much better than Havertz right now. Yeah, Vieira was kind of the forgotten man at the start of the season. Then he scored the winning penalty in the Community Shield. And you're right, whenever he's been on the pitch, you notice he's there. He he wants the ball. He kind of takes the game by the by the scruff of the neck. And I think he's probably moved up the, the pecking order as as this season has progressed so far. Let's talk a little bit about Tottenham then, Sam. Christian Romero had a, an improved start to the season. Seems to have that little bit more composure nowadays. And he's actually the best-rated centre-back in the Premier League, according to who scored. Nice little partnership with, with Van der Ven as well. They kind of iron out each other's deficiencies, I would say. And that kind of makes for a nice pairing. They're a really good pairing. 
I've been really impressed with actually the the entire Tottenham back five. If you just want to include Vicario for a second, really really nice defensive line and 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 connections between the players. Romero and Van der Ven I think have been really really good. Um, little stat for you: thirteen Spurs players have been booked in the Premier League so far this season, and Christian Romero is not one of them. I mean, he's Absolutely. one you always put a bet on pre game to get a yellow card as well, isn't he? Hundred percent. And look, I'm not ruling it out in this one because this is a whole different ball game. But one foul in five games. Can I just can I just give uh, Christian Romero uh, a, a theoretical round of applause here? Because like, mm. it's just thank you, Ali. Um, because he's not even overdue a booking. He's committed one foul in five games. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. So, yeah, really impressed with him. I'm really impressed with Van der Ven because I didn't really know much about him. Like, he looks like he's going to be a bit slow, but he's definitely he's not quick. Yeah, and he's he's not he's not slow at all. But because he look when he runs, it looks like he's straining every sinew to get above eight miles an hour because of that awkward running style. It tricks you into thinking that he's cumbersome, but he's not. He's a serious, serious centre-back. And these two together, the back four, I'm, a- I'm actually loving watching Spurs uh, and they're a big reason as to why. Yeah, they're, they're a good watch at the moment, Spurs, are, aren't they, Ali? And they, they found a way to win last time out. And again, you know, all the discussions around Richarlison and Son, Richarlison comes out of the team because Son did so well centrally the, the game before Richarlison comes on. And now the talk's going to be, oh, they should probably put Son back out wide and get Richarlison <laughs> at the top. That's the nature of football, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I would want Son back off the left for this game. Um, not necessarily for, for every fixture, but uh, just for how I see Spurs needing to approach this one tactically. Um, so for me, it would be Richarlison in for Solomon and uh, and Son to go out on the left. And I think Solomon can have a big impact off the bench. I think Spurs have uh, players now who will start on the bench because not every attacking player can start. And you'll nod your head and be able to think, yeah, I could actually see them having a big impact. I think there's a question on the other side as well, where Kuliszewski's brilliant and what a, what a great player to watch and a player clearly in good form. I would be tempted to start Brennan Johnson for this game. Uh, I've got a, a memory of opening day, Arsenal against Nottingham Forest, where Johnson had a great chance in behind mm-hmm. that Arsenal defence, uh, which he put over the bar, I think. Um, but, you know, if, if you want someone to exploit a high line, quick transition attacking... Probably it's Son and it's Johnson in terms of the profile of, of Spurs players. So it'd be a massive call given he's only just joined. But just thinking in terms of horses for courses, I'd be kind of interested in that as an approach. Um, I, I sort of see Johnson potentially being able to have a big moment um, uh, in, in what should be a matchup where Spurs are, are going to have opportunities to break quickly and if they get it right, should be able to cut through Arsenal. They'll also back themselves to, to create chances with more settled possession build-up play, which obviously is what uh, Ange is trying to to implement. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard not to be excited, really, on a tactical level for this game and all of the interesting selection decisions as well. Is this where we're seeing Postacoglu's man management come to, come to the fore a little bit, Sam? Because, you know, the difference in between hearing Conte talk about Richarlison last season compared to hearing Postacoglu talk about Richarlison. And then after that's happened... He's got a goal and an assist and completely swung the game in Spurs' favour. Is that that good management? I think uh, the, the general atmosphere around Spurs right now is the best it's been in years. Years and years since the absolute peak Pochettino days. And there is essentially one man or one man and his staff responsible for that. And it's Ange Postacoglu. So, yes, you're absolutely right in what you say about Richarlison and his his management of Richarlison's situation, the way he's spoken about it, the decision to speak about it in the first place, but in such a caring way. And the the response that that has elicited, 
I think you can look at a lot of these Spurs players who have clearly improved tenfold. Um, Richarlison is one of them, sure. But let's look at Eve Basuma. Uh, let's look at Romero. Uh, let's look at Pedro Porro. And you can say you've got... you've got Sar as posi- well. Yeah, Sar, you've got positive stories left, right, centre, everywhere you look. And um, there's a root cause to all that. And it's very obviously the new manager in charge who just about everybody except for maybe Arsenal fans, but even they're probably tested in this stage. Um, we've all fallen in love with him, haven't we? Yeah, it's been a yes. breath of fresh air, actually, when you when you think about where Spurs were. And just listening to him talk, he's he's so, so engaging. And you know things are going well when you're making those kind of subs and they do swing swing the game in, in your favour. I mean, Son's who scored rating was 5.98. Last time out, Richarlison came on and got a 7.63. So whatever Postacoglu's done in the lead up to that game. Because Richarlison's the kind of player as well that, you know, probably usually would react badly to being left out. He's given him a positive reaction. And again, that just shows that the measure of Postacoglu's man management. Just final question on this game, Ali. What's the key area of the pitch for this one? Where is this game going to swing? That's such a good question. I, I sort of think Thank that you. I um like when you watch these games between the, the big six teams, I hate that phrase so much. Newcastle uh, are one of the best teams in the country. And I suppose they're not really... Uh, included when you say big six, so I need to I need to sort and of Brighton. refresh my vote. And Brighton, exactly. <laughs> and Villa. Games between big nine teams. Just, uh... <laughs> I read something earlier that said it was now a big eleven. I read, I read earlier. <laughs> wow. Incredible. Is that West Ham and Brentford? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. How, how far did you go down? Yeah, the big eleven. Yeah. It's almost I'll a big ten in Man City, point. essentially, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think I think you know the last year or two we've been really treated haven't we with like some insane spectacles and it's it's down to the way that the managers are are playing it's down to how they respond to the tactics of the other managers and now we're, we're just seeing these teams trying to bait each other into coming onto them so that they can have space and attacking behind because managers like Arteta and Postacoglu get really bored of of managing teams or managing against teams that set up in a low block so I think these games are more entertaining than ever uh, and and to me, it seems like it's the it's basically the moments of transition that often decide them. Uh, there will be chances for both teams and regular chances when they win the ball to attack with speed and clarity and good combination play and create really good chances because the def- the opposition defense is backpedaling. That's the football that I find really exciting, and I think both teams have a, have a good chance of hurting the other on that front. So it, it's going to be. Hold your breath, basically, every time one of the teams loses the ball in midfield because the, the next 10 seconds are going to be crucial. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how Arsenal do do shape up in midfield for this one. Personally, that's where I think it, it'll be won and lost, much would depend on the, the selection of Arsenal and whether they do get caught in transition or not, because we've seen with their shape at times, they can sometimes look a little bit short if, if a team does counter on them. So I think that, that'll be a really interesting area. Ali, you're representing George in the Predictions League this week. Uh-huh. What are you going to go for? I'm going to go for 2-1 to Arsenal. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. This is the game in my head where I'm always just like, right, well, obviously the North London derby is always drawn 2-2, which I think might have been the case, but it was about five years ago. Nowadays, (laughs) the home side tends to win. But as we started the show with, it's very rare that in the recent history that we've seen the two teams look as in fine fettle as they do right now when they actually meet. So I am going to go 2-2. (laughs) <laughs> which is probably wrong because I think I've said that for the last four years in a row, so eight times. <laughs> but I'm due a win. <laughs> well, 
the good news for you is Tutu is what I was going to go for as well. So I'm going to I'm, I'm going to stick that's with good that. News gonna go me, that's that's yeah. good news for me. That's good news for me. Could be could yeah, be yeah, good that's... news for George Elliott, could, couldn't he? I think he is he bottom at the moment. I haven't got the table in front of me. He's, oh, he's embarrassing. Let's look now at Burnley against Manchester United and Sam Anana is getting some stick in certain quarters. It says here in the script, he's looked small in goal at times. Is it deserved criticism? I've got to be honest, when I've watched him, I've not thought he was a a major problem. He's just definitely not in the top five list of problems for Manchester United Football Club right now, is he? No. So, like, he might might not have stolen the show, but when you've got multiple players... Do watch the Brighton goals back, Dan. It's, it's, It's ones where you go... Oh, good finish. And then on the third replay, you're starting to think. Okay. Can't say I noticed that. Could you have maybe got there? I, I, I had the exact same reaction to the script as you did and then went back okay. and watched with that in mind. And I was like, oh, yeah. But I was I'm surprised. I'm goalkeepers as well, normally. I'm very critical. Yeah. So I'm surprised that I haven't I was, picked up on that. I, I remember watching <laughs> him in the Champions League last season and thinking it was a complete opposite. I thought his athleticism, it met, made it look like he could get to any part of the goal at a split second. So, yeah. I'm interested to he made know one happened. great save that he, t- that he tipped wide that he had that he had no right, right to get. Is it possibly what's going on in front of him and it not being settled? That that being the problem, sir. Oh, I think we can we can definitely say that what's happening in front of him is not good. Um, I, th- I think, as I say, if you draft up your list of five biggest problems at Man United right now, it's you know at least two, possibly three forwards or wingers embroiled in off-field controversies. You've got key defenders that are injured. You've got reports of certain players exploding at one another in the dressing room. Onana like, has been slightly below average in terms of shot-stopping performance. Um, Opta's uh, post-shot expected goals put him at about 0.4 conceded more than he should have. So not too far above or below the line. And well, we haven't seen too many of those like, raking passes. In fact, m- most of the raking passes, if he has any played any, like they've kind of gone a bit awry. There's no doubt they're recycling the ball at the back much better, retaining the ball a lot better there, and his short passing is really good. The next problem for Man United there is that whenever they pass to Wan Bissaka, the ball disappears. So that's not Onana's fault. Everybody marks everybody except a, a Wan Bissaka. Everybody lets Onana pass the ball to Wan Bissaka, and then the ball disappears. They've got problems. He wouldn't be one that I'm drafting up. And I did a, I did a video for who scored on the YouTube channel uh, for like uh, tracking Spurs' build-up patterns. So I watched the Spurs Man United game back. Actually, some of the passes Onana is firing off between the lines, low and hard, first time, yeah. setting him off. Brilliant, brilliant. So that's what that's fifty percent of his game, you know. And, they, and they, they're getting parts of it. Maybe not the whole thing yet. Um, but I'm not particularly worried about Onana. I'd be I'd be worried we about Onana. everything else. Yeah, go on, think, Onana. I mean, he's coming out of my fantasy football team ASAP simply <laughs> because they're they're not keeping clean sheets. But I don't think that's that that's solely down to him. He's the only one really letting me down in my fantasy football team at, at the moment. In in front of him, Ali, you've got Martinez having to play without Varane at the moment, and you know he's looking le- less assured. But we're still living in a world where Victor Lindelof is in the starting eleven for Manchester United more often than, than not. Should we still be in that phase? So you're smashing the predictions. You're smashing FPL. Doing Anything okay. you can't do? I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm <laughs> doing all right. You just said he's the only player that's letting you down. Makes me I've think had you're a good start. I've had a rare week. good start on fantasy football this year. <laughs> rare good start. Um, yeah, look, M- Martinez is exposed because... Well, in my opinion, anyway, more down to issues within the team than his own massive drop in performance level. Right? It's no surprise, and it's and it's the case in any league for any team that the defender that is as front-footed as he is, a little bit like Romero, 
to be honest, is going to have moments, high profile errors, particularly of positioning, where it looks really bad because they're, you know, they're they're scampering back towards their own goal. They're behind the play and the goal is scored because they pressed someone too tight. It was bounced off to someone else. Uh, they got turned and, and that is, is really difficult for a player like that. Um, so for me, it's much more down to the embarrassing structure in front of him and how often it's cl- sort of collapsing, which I think exposes him. And, and more broadly, like we're focusing on individual players here, but more broadly, again, not specific to Manchester United. I think almost any team in the world that has players who have performed at quite a good level or at least a much better level and then all of a sudden are all individually looking terrible, it is almost never worth like zooming in just on the players because it's almost certainly something more structural, the bigger issues like Sam has discussed and shock horror when something changes, quite often a manager change or a change in uh, just a couple of wins the same players are, are performing pretty well, sometimes under a different manager in a different system, but sometimes they sort it out and suddenly they look good again. So that's kind of how I come at it and why so far, Onana not giving him much stick. Martinez also not giving him that much stick at the moment. Yeah, sorry, just to come in here as well. I think without Varane, Lissandro looks worse because when you have a player like Lissandro who likes to step up and engage very, very high and take risks, it's really nice to be able to have a very good kind of recovery defender behind you uh, and Varane is one of the best or has been one of the best in the world at defending in a similar way to Virgil van Dijk where his defending style is to back off and back yeah. off and back off and delay and that gives everybody else time to get back down the pitch and even the numbers out what Lissandro does is he kind of just runs and jumps in now this is in my opinion problematic but it, it, he is who he is right Lindelof is obviously really struggling in the wake here of Lissandro it might be better for him at times to calm down. But I don't think anybody's got the balls to tell him to change his style because I don't think the results would be particularly pleasant for whoever says it. But when Lissandro keeps getting removed because he's like, like he keeps getting subbed, uh, keeps is, is too strong. But sometimes he gets subbed on a yellow after 45 or 50 minutes. And it's like, mate, come on. We can't keep doing this. You're a really mm. expensive, mm. really important part of the team. And when you take Varane off the back end of it as well to cover up some of that, yeah, it looks it looks a lot worse. You, Ali's right not to focus on individuals. It is the overall structure. But Martinez must look to his right and think, okay, you're still here then, to Lindelof. And now look to his left and think, Reggion? What, you know, what's, 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 what, what's going on here? And I thought their system was, I say, interesting. Probably, probably isn't interesting to Manchester United fans at all, but Ericsson playing as a as a shuttler. Is that is that his game? That was a bad midfield. We don't need to talk about that. No, I mean, <laughs> was really bad. Well, yeah, one of the note, one of my notes is uh, having Casemiro, Ericsson, Bruno Fernandez all in the same midfield trying to press Brighton is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, you're completely right. In it. And let's talk about Casemiro. Nobody's been dribbled past more times than Casemiro this season in the Premier League. 13 times he's been dribbled past. And Ali, he suddenly looks a little bit tired and a, and a little bit old. He was so good last season, but he's not, he got off to an iffy start. But again, I suppose it comes back to we shouldn't be looking at individuals. It's the team set up. Watching Brighton's first goal, pretty tough scene for Casemiro. As you say, it just looks slow and heavy and not perhaps as motivated as you would want your defence midfielder to break his neck to get back in to, to defend the box, to defend the cross that is inevitably going to come in and is probably going to be a cross cut back to the penalty spot rather than fizzed into the six-yard box because those are the sort of patterns of play that we see a lot now. 
uh, and that's his job to be the one to clear it away. And, and Welbeck, Welbeck was miles in front of him and scored. So, yeah, it, it does look like a bit of a problem on that front. The dribbling stat is really concerning. Um, I mean, I, there was a part of me that thinks, is that the most important thing? Like how often a game is a defence midfielder being dribbled past? But actually the numbers are quite high considering we're only a couple of games into the season. I still think... You know, it could be circumstantial. It could be down to international break. It could be down to a poor conditioning over the summer. It, it could be something that in a couple of weeks' time looks a lot better. And I still think he's still decent on the ball. He's, he's still positioning is, is fine. His passing is fine. Um, and if he can improve whatever the problem is with his conditioning, could be back to being great again and, and, and perfectly good for this United team as he was last season. Um, but of course, there is the potential for this to just be the, you know, the twilight of his career. And he's played a lot of football at a very, very high level. Like Rafael Varane, you sign those players who have already won everything there is to win with Real Madrid and done so over the course of a decade. And you hope to get a year or two out of them where they just maintain those standards. But you can't expect that forever. Is Ten Hag in, in trouble, Sam? We've got his last 10 results, or Manchester United's last 10 results against top 10 teams. Obviously, Brighton have dispatched them last weekend. Is Ten Hag in, in a little bit of trouble? I thought it was quite funny this morning. The, the Athletic had a, a big interview with Ali Gunnar Solskjaer. I feel like that interview's maybe been there waiting for the right time, waiting to get mm-hmm. his OK for a while. And then just as things have started to go a little bit awry for Manchester United, Solskjaer probably thinks, this might be a good time for for my interview to go out because it it makes me look. It probably doesn't make me look as bad as perhaps I was. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, mm, is he no. is he under is he under any kind of pressure? Oh, that's a tin foil hat there, Dan. Interesting. Um, In what sense? I don't well, think I, I mean, that that are you you're, you're um, possibly reading into an innocuous interview? Uh, uh, well, I think there's something a bit more nefarious. I don't know. We'll see. You think so? Mm. I don't think he's under too much pressure right now I don't think he's in an unsafe position I don't think that they're rushing to change manager when they're in the middle of a potential sale with you know Jaden Sancho disciplinary issues and the Mason Greenwood situation and the Anthony situation um Eric Ten Hag last season did a really good job and part of that job was he prevented the ceiling of the whole club just caving in on the dressing room um, he managed to hold it all together and the building stayed upright despite extreme pressure from above and from the sides. So I don't think all of that goodwill goes away after like five games. No. Um, I don't think that would be... Un- I don't. But think you've lost three fair. out of five, which is pretty hefty for Manchester United. Yeah, it's. It's. I mean, I'm not going to defend him. Like, he's. I don't think he's done a particularly good job this season. Like, the, the performances haven't been good. The structure's not been good. His response to the first four games was to switch to that disgusting diamond midfield against Brighton and they got absolutely battered. Like, I can't say he's doing a good job, but what I guess I'm saying is that uh, at Manchester United right now, the manager's job is not just about uh, those results. Obviously, results are massive, but he is he is probably holding a few things up right here that they would be very silly to, to jump on too quickly. Um, I kind of see United as like the Ents from Lord of the Rings long long time to do anything particularly quickly at all and if they are to fire Eric Ten Hag let's say this is the beginning of the beginning of the end not the beginning of the end if you think about Mourinho Solskjaer felt like the first year was was good and then the same old problem started to creep in at the moment I would say 
at the start of the season, it, it feels a little bit like that for Ten Hag. I'm not disputing he did an excellent job last season, but there is a risk that the same mm. pattern follows, Ala. I don't know if I'm remembering it right, but that's how I remember it. No, no, I think that's fair. I, I was fairly positive about United before the start of the season, and it seems right. insane to sit here now um, thinking that that was the case because of everything that's going on and has gone on. Uh, not all of it is on the pitch, but even if you do just focus on the pitch, uh, you know, understanding that off-field stuff has a big impact, understanding that they do have a, a disgusting injury list uh, on top of other absentees. Uh, it's, I'm not saying it's easy for him, but it is also a tactical thing that's going wrong um, on top of club atmosphere, on top of uh, injuries, on top of poor squad building over a number of years. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm now scrambling to remember why I was, I was positive and thought United might, you know, maybe be the second best team in the league now. I mean, wouldn't even have them in the top four right now. I had them to come second. I know I had them to come third, actually. I had, I had Arsenal second, but I thought they'd be pretty close with Arsenal this season. But the way the, the season has started off, that's, it doesn't look like it's going to transpire that way at all. Let's talk a little bit about Burnley now, Ali. And we discovered before we came on that I've watched every game Burnley have played so far in the Premier League this season and four episodes of, of the documentary. So I was all in on Burnley at the start <laughs> of the season. And many people called them to that they wouldn't really be in any danger out of the three promoted teams. They'd be the one that that were set up the best. Vincent Company's very, very impressive, can talk up, can talk down, the way he speaks about what they're trying to build and how they're trying to bring players in. I completely understand it. But if you look at their most used 11 so far this season, there's only three players with any real minutes behind them in, in the Premier League. Does Company need to kind of tweak some of his methods and, and, tweak, and kind of just tweak things a little bit? Because they've... Good point against Forest on Monday, but in the, in the other games, they've been brushed aside pretty easily. I would say no, definitely not. Okay, I think uh, I think double down. Um, partly because you've watched the documentary, you know what happened last season, and a big part of what happened last season was the sort of player that they recruited. They did not follow what most relegated clubs into the championship do and buy mm. players that have been good in the championship before. They bought players that they thought were excellent players who were young, who would be dynamic, fit a certain style of play. And shock horror, they bought good players and they were amazing in the championship, even though they hadn't played much in the championship. Um, they did have players like Jack Cork, who was obviously experienced. And uh, I just don't see that being something that we can say definitively is an issue right now. I don't even know what we can, if there's anything I'm willing to say is a problem for Burnley right now. They have played okay. Manchester City, Tottenham Hotspur, Aston Villa and Nottingham Forest. They lost against City and Tottenham Hotspur. You can draw a line through those games for pretty much any bottom half team, but certainly any team that comes up from the champ from the championship in their first fixtures of the season. They were too open against Villa, no doubt about that. And that wasn't a very good performance, but Villa are a very good team, as we know. One of the best teams in this calendar year in the Premier League and, and therefore by default in the world, right? Uh, I'm exaggerating a bit to make my point, love, but hopefully you're starting love to it, see Alan. what's coming. Absolutely love and, it. <laughs> and, 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 and Forest away on Monday, to my eyes, quite clearly the better team and the team yeah, could have more, won. Likely, more likely to win the game. The team that scored a good goal that was uh, disallowed for unfortunate reasons or disgraceful reasons, depending on uh, how, you, how you look at VAR and things like that. I'm not too interested in that necessarily. My point is, I think they've got the exactly the results that you would expect realistically for them to get from those games. So uh, they'll probably lose to Manchester United as well. Why, you know, they, then they have no right no, to they might, they really might not. compete. Or well, they might not. But <laughs> what I'm saying is, even if they do, like for me, it is, it is way too early to be 
just looking at the points tally and saying something's massively wrong. And I think to, you know, the other point is buying Premier League experience is presumably a quite expensive, and b if you're buying it, that suggests that someone's happy to let it go. Uh, so I, I don't really know what buying Premier League experience really means, like which players that actually means. And if they had done that, it would have gone away completely from what had made them so successful before. So the way I see it with Burnley, with most of the teams that come up from the Championship, is that it's better to almost double down um, than make a lot of changes and, and and potentially disrupt what's what's made you good up to that point. Explain bloody excellently from, from Ali. We'll get him on again, Sam. We, we definitely were excellent Very explanation good, yeah. of Burnley. Dan, would you like me to... I was going to ask you, actually, Sam. Dan, would you like me to yeah, side with you? I can side with you a little bit here if you want. No, no, no I think he's actually debunked everything Everything I said, although I will say okay. most of it was in the script. I went, Sometimes when I'm wrong, I'm just reading what's on the script. It's not down to, mm. down to personal opinion. If it's wrong, it's not come from my head. It's it, it's off the script. I want to no, say but that, presenter's job is to tee up answers like that. So, oh, you know, no, don't worry about how it makes sense. It was a great answer. I really, well really, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> Sam, they've got some bright players though, Burnley, as we saw on Monday night against Forest. They do have some bright players, yeah. And look, for for the record, I did put them in my bottom three for the reason yep. of that team looks too young. Now, this may be way too surface level for someone as smart as Ali Maxwell, but having not known too much about Burnley in the championship, but knowing that they played a more expansive style and knowing that the age balance of the team did look a little bit young, it did skew a little bit young, I just as we all do over 38 games when we have to guess the table, which is an absurd thing to do really, but we all love it. I put Burnley in the bottom three. I also don't necessarily see any reason to change that because fundamentally they have been a bit naive tactically. Like the, the performance against Tottenham going one-to-one across the pitch is usually a bad idea. It's definitely a bad idea when the team you're playing is significantly better than you. And they've now done it against several teams. So I'm hoping for their sake that there is some kind of adjustment, which is kind of what you're alluding to, Dan. Some kind of adjustment that mm-hmm. can still allow those bright players that you mentioned to sing. And like I'm not, I wasn't familiar with Kali uh, Osho, but Jesus, that guy is fast. He's good. <laughs> like goodness me. And like if there's one thing a, a newly promoted team really, really needs is pace. They really need to be able to break on teams. If they do get hemmed in for 10 minutes, if they do have to ride out a significant period of pressure, if you don't have pace that can get you out of that, you are in so much trouble. I just want to see them deployed a bit more conservatively, particularly against teams that are very clearly better than you. And that might give them a better chance. Yeah, the two youngest teams that have been named in the Premier League this season both came from Burnley. And in fact, three of the youngest five-team selections so far in the Premier League this season have been named by them. But that's the nature of of what they're trying to do, as usual with these things. Probably the truth is somewhere in between the middle of what of what you two you two have said. But Ali has swayed me actually with, with what he said. I thought he made some made some excellent points. Let's get a prediction then for but, Burnley. But from, Dan, uh, Southampton okay. just went down. Yeah, Southampton and just went more... down with a bunch of awesome young players. That's true. You know, the age balance was completely off. And once it went mm. wrong, it was it was irretrievable. And so I think we've got a really good example from last season of why, like, it can go quite wrong. So is there something you can do to fix it? And that's why that's where I end up questioning Burnley, truly. 
Okay, I didn't think that's fair. I do still think Burnley will will stay up. I think they'll be three worst teams and then this season in the Premier League. Let's get some score predictions then for this one. Burnley against Manchester United. Sam, your turn to go first. Hmm. <laughs> interesting, interesting. I'm very tempted here, but surely quality wins out. Surely Man United have some kind of response. Um, let's go for 2-1 to United. 2-1 United. I mean, United, as, a, as we've mentioned, we, we're recording before the Champions League. They, they could come away from... Quite quite a humbling uh, uh, by Munich, so that will play a part. I'm gonna I'm gonna say three one to Manchester United though on on this occasion. Allah, yeah, two one Burnley. Uh, two one to Burnley. That, yeah, uh, okay. situation at United, um, both tactically, but probably more importantly, spiraling off the field as as far as I can see it. Um, a trip to Bayern Munich, which. You know, it's a bit silly for me to mention because by the time this goes out, the match will have happened. But broadly, whatever the result, it's going to take a lot out of their legs. They've got tons of injuries. Uh, and I think that Burnley's pace on the break can hurt them a lot. So um, I, I think the atmosphere is going to be unbelievable at Turf Moor. Imagine how up for it they're going to be. And uh, yeah. I think they're going to win 2-1. I mean, the handbrake is well and truly off in, in the George Ellick camp with the predictions, but it's not George Ellick taking the handbrake off. It's his good friend, <laughs> Ali Maxwell. Let's do the rest of our predictions. Then we've done a couple already. I'll run you through the Premier League fixtures and then we're going to predict each of us the score for this weekend. So first up, we've got a London derby, Crystal Palace against Fulham. I will go first this time and I'm going to say 1-1. Ali? It's it's the most one one game of all time. Yeah, one one written all over it. Sam, are you going to join us at the one one table? <laughs> Why not one 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 as well? Luton, who we're going to speak about very shortly against Wolves, huge game there at Luton. Ali, one uh, 0 Luton. I'm going to say I'm going to go for another another one one. I think Sam one uh, 0 to Wolves then. 1-0 to Wolves. Is this why you're top of the table, Dan? Because you say 1-1 for every game and that's the most regular scoreline. Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson's usual tactic, actually. He's been, been doing that for years, but it doesn't seem to be working for him <laughs> so far. Manchester City against Forrest, Sam? 4-0 to Man City. 3-0. I'm going to go 3-1 to Manchester City. Brentford against Everton, which is the tea time offering on Sky Sports. Can't see Everton getting anything there. I'm going to go for Brentford 2, Everton 0. Sam? 2-1 to Brentford. 1-0 Brentford. Brighton and Hove Albion against Bournemouth, Alla. 1-1, I think. Bit of a first ever European game hangover. 1-1. Logical, to, to be fair, Sam? Yeah, I like that logic. I'm... I like it so much. I'm going to ignore it, uh, despite the fact that my brain is screaming at me to tell uh, to, to follow suit. I'm going to take the Brighton win. Uh, I'm going to go for two one. I was going to go three one to Brighton, so I'll I'll stick with that, despite Ali's logic. Chelsea against Villa, Sam. So Villa beat the bad teams and lose to the good teams. So what a Chelsea! I don't know. I don't want to say. Yeah. So one all. One all. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go one nil to Aston Villa. One nil to Villa. I'm going to go for. 2-0 to Villa, the same as the same as last season. I mean, I'm, I'm jinxing it completely here, but I watch Chelsea and just think, I'm not sure they actually know where the goal is. They're just one of the most poorest teams I've ever seen in my life in, in front of goal. Liverpool against West Ham. I'm going to go for 2-1 to Liverpool. Sam? Yeah, 3-1 Liverpool. 4-1 Liverpool. 4-1 to Liverpool. That's big. That's a bold, bold prediction. That, that, that is, um, George will be fuming at that one, I reckon, when he, when he watches <laughs> this back. Finally, we've got Sheffield United against Newcastle. Ali, you go first this time. I think it will be 2-0 to Newcastle. 1-0 Newcastle. 
exactly what I was going to say. So I'll stick with it. I was going to go 1-0 to Newcastle as well. We're going to finish this week's edge of the box by looking at Luton Town. Tough start to the for them, sorry, in the Premier League so far this season. Zero points on the board, Ali. Is there anything they can take heart from so far? And you won't be surprised to hear that I think, yes, there is yes. a lot that they can take heart from. Uh, I think that in their sort of context as a newly promoted team with such low resources and having not splashed the cash uh, like a lot of teams do, I think that their performance away at Fulham in that 1-0 defeat was good, uh, about as good as away performance as as you'd expect. And I think if they put in that sort of performance away at teams like Fulham, they will not lose all their away games. Um, but outside of that, it's very similar vibes to what I just said about Burnley in that I don't care about Luton losing away at Brighton on opening day. I they actually played really well in that game. That game could have gone differently. They, they missed good chances at crucial times in the, in that one. Yeah, missed good chance against Fulham. I don't care about them losing away at Chelsea, uh, particularly. And um, they've played three of their four games away from home. They've played a yeah. game less than all the other team, well, most of the other teams in the division. Um, and the away games aren't likely where a, prom- a team that stays up, having been promoted, picks up the majority of their points. Obviously, it doesn't hurt. But last season, we can look at two pretty good examples. Nottingham Forest didn't get relegated. They won one of 19 away from home. Everton didn't get relegated. They won two of 19 away from home. So away games have been, you know, how they've started the season. I'm not too worried about it. And I think if you watch the game against Fulham, if you watch the game against West Ham and maybe even that one against Brighton down that you mentioned, you know, there's so much rubbish being tweeted about Luton Town and it's it's so lazy and stupid. And I think if you watch those games and you think this is a terrible Premier League football team or just a terrible football team, I think that's what you're being. I think you're being lazy and stupid. Yeah, they've got a good manager as well. Rob, Rob Edwards did an incredible job there. Did some good work previously in the EFL as well. Sam, the three games that they've got coming up or three games that they have coming up, Wolves at home, Everton away, Burnley at home. Ali said he's not worried about some of the games they've lost. What should they be looking to get points-wise from those three? <sighs> I mean, you, Rob, Rob Edwards would probably refuse to put a, a points tally on it, right? In, in terms of an aim, he'd just try and get better and better. Um, I, don't, I don't know what kind of fixture actually suits Luton the best. We, we tend to look at that run of fixtures there. We look at that, the calibre of the teams that they're going to face and assume that you're more likely to get the points against the lower ranked sides, which is usually true. Luton are very embedded in their style, though, aren't they? They, they don't necessarily, they're not fussed about having the ball. They're more than happy for you to have the ball. They just want to break on you and where possible and you know use the destructive presences in midfield and then use the speed they've got to transition and they've got loads of it haven't they from the wing backs and the forwards that they're pretty well equipped to do what they're going to do and that isn't going to change in any of the 38 games to me it looks like the sort of template that can result in survival so then where they might fall down is unfortunately it's the old argument of quality are you good enough to actually get those points on the board no issue with their setup i cannot levy the same accusations at them than I do at Burnley, where I, I say to Bur- I say Burnley are a bit naive and a bit a bit too risky. I don't think that's the case with Luton. And I don't think they're being unambitious either no. by wanting to play on the break. Or, and because I've seen that, I've seen that bandied around too. I'd be concerned at just a general lack of quality in terms of getting over the line, which is a very fair concern when you consider that they do work within their means. They don't spend big money. They absolutely don't push the boat out and risk the club's future on these things. That's not being unambitious. That's just being realistic. 
So, yeah, I'd like to see them pick up a couple of points because the longer you stay on zero, I mean, obviously the harder it gets, but the darker the cloud becomes. But Palace Palace went eight games and they lost the first eight and stayed up. Mate, last season, I've done my research here, Wolves only won one of their first nine, they stayed up. Forest only won one of their first nine. They had five points from 10 games and they stayed up. Like People want to make early conclusions and they want to relegate teams uh, and it's just not worth doing so. It's just not how football works. You know, if you are gunning for the title or the top four and you're dropping points in August and September, that can be very terminal because the teams at the top are picking up two and a half points per game. So if you're not, you're getting cut adrift from that race. But down at the bottom, everyone is poor, doesn't pick up a lot of points. It's very hard to get cut adrift. So uh, I'm not worried at all about about Luton, but I do agree and take Sam's point that so far, based on what I've seen, they need a bit of like finishing potion uh, because they've had moments and they haven't taken those chances and then they're, they're unlikely to create loads of them. So when they come, they need to be taken. My concern is with the work that those strikers put in physically the amount of ground they cover, that's Adebayo, that's Morris, that's Brown. My, like, I personally believe, and I don't know if data backs this up, that players like that uh, have a tougher time in terms of finishing and the sorts of players that underperform their XG, I think generally are guys who are putting in a ton of work outside and are just fatigued, basically, physically mm-hmm. and mentally, more so than those who are just ready to to take first-time shots and, and don't do a lot else. So they could do with a bit of finishing potion and, and they could do with... Kaminsky making a, f- a few more saves. I don't think he's been terrible, but you know, even half a mistake like the one against Fulham where he pushes out across and gets tapped in, that undermines a good performance and, and you can't have that sort of too often. This huge game against Wolves, it's the kind of game where you look at it and you earmark it as one they potentially get three points. I think they probably take a point now just to just just to get off the mark. That would be huge for them. But good luck to them because, like you said, they're not throwing everything at it. They're being sensible. And just the fact that they're even in the Premier League is a, is a magnificent achievement. That does us for this week's podcast. Thanks to the chaps for joining me. It's been a pleasure to preview this Premier League game week with you. We'll be back next week to preview another Premier League game week. But in the meantime, if you could subscribe to the channel with your post notifications on that would be absolutely excellent for us give the video a like and comment as well with your thoughts do you agree with some of the stuff we've said in this podcast as i say we'll be back next week tell all your friends and family about the pod see you later